But thank you so much for making time uh, for this like little talk between us. So then, just like as an introduction, could you give like a little bit of a background about yourself? I know you did this like towards the beginning of the semester with me, but can you just do it again? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Jason Fabricant, I've uh, been here at American University for 15 years. I'm currently a senior professorial lecturer in the School of Public Affairs, Justice, Law, and Criminology Department. Uh, I started off in the Washington Semester Program uh, in 2007, and I teach courses in Justice and Law. Uh, and I'm currently teaching your course, which is Introduction to Law. I'm teaching a, another call, course called Complex Problems, Death Penalty Perspectives. Uh, that's an AU core class. And then I'm teaching two research courses, Intro to Justice Research and Intro to Legal Studies Research. Uh, so you know, my teaching right now is primarily in the Justice Law and Criminology Department. On a personal side, I'm a Washingtonian and native of DC. Uh, I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania and got my JD from the Washington College of Law. So I am an Eagle. I reside in DC with my family, uh, a spouse and, and two children. And uh, yeah, I'd say my favorite spot on the campus is the, the swimming pool when I had a chance to go swimming, or I do like the quad as well. So those would be kind of my favorite spots. But uh, yeah, I'm passionate about teaching. And I would also just finally add that I've done some work in administrative capacities, both as assistant dean for faculty affairs and then associate dean for academic affairs. Uh, when the School of Professional Extended Studies existed, uh, existed, it recently closed. So I do have some administrative experience as well. Well, thank you so much for just giving that simple background. Personally, like for me, what I always do during our break in the Intro to Law class is I always go outside and you know the uh, building of Kogod? Mm -hmm. There are like a few benches and a bunch of trees. I always go near the benches and talk to my family during that time. So I always like leave during that time. And that's like one of my favorite spots. It's just so like calming and soothing there at least. But I also love the quad. There's so much like different things happening. So sure. yeah, absolutely. I definitely love that. And then what really made you like want to teach? Because I know you're an attorney, correct? Yeah, I'm a lawyer. We talked about mm -hmm. kind of the difference between yeah. lawyer and attorney in class. And um, I, I mean, I've always liked teaching. I, I graduated law school and it was time for a change. I moved out to New Mexico, became a middle school teacher. Uh, and middle school has its real challenges, especially behaviorally that you don't see as much, if at all, in college. But I always knew that I had a passion for teaching. And then I got an email from an administrator here at American University saying, why don't you apply to teach in uh, the Washington Mentorship Program, which is now the AP Cornerstone Program. And so I knew it was my time to come back to DC and uh, I taught in that program and I've been here ever since. It's just, I, I like working with students. I like the energy, uh, I like the discourse, discussion, debate, um, talking about, uh, you know, current events and, uh, you know, the criminal legal system, especially when you're taking away people's freedom, it's worthy of taking a close, detailed uh, analysis of what, what we're doing to make sure that we have a fair system, that people's constitutional rights aren't being violated. So yeah, I just, I, I like talking through these issues and um, yeah, it's just, uh, I think uh, when you have a passion for something, you know it. And I knew pretty early on that, that teaching was what was for me. And then the adversarial nature of being a lawyer, I don't think was something that really appealed to me coming into, uh, uh, not every sector of the law is that way, but it just didn't seem to appeal to me uh, and my personality as well. 
Yeah, I definitely see that we go over a lot of current events. I remember we were talking about the Rittenhouse case, like, in class, and there's, like, a huge discussion about it, which I remember there's, like, just so much to talk about. And then um, the other case as well. I'm blanking on it, but... Yeah, McMichael's brothers who were convicted of uh, shooting and killing Ahmaud Arbery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that, so that case, the, the two cases, while going on at the same time, under similar legal concepts about uh, not self-defense was kind of the overarching uh, concept uh, in one case in Rittenhouse case acquitted and then McMichael's brothers convicted so uh, some would say justice on one front and not on the other yeah it's just so interesting to see like the difference between the two cases and especially like the implication it has on like especially with social media I know that whenever I go on Instagram, there's just, like, a huge difference on how people are viewing the case. And it, like, I feel like social media is, like, a huge aspect when looking at the different things that are happening around us. But, Mm -hmm. like, personally, looking at the case itself, it was actually, like, even though I didn't view the whole thing, I think I viewed, like, maybe 20 minutes of it. It, like, opened my eyes a little bit on how, like, different things need to be argued in order for you to like win a court case it's not simply like did he do or did he not it's about like what he's arguing and what you're looking to like acquit him of correct yeah i mean the burden falls on the prosecution to prove Mm -hmm. guilt beyond a reasonable doubt which is a high bar and we talk about people's freedom and you know it should be a high bar because you're going to be putting people behind bars uh if they are convicted of these serious crimes so uh, yeah, some would say the prosecutors in the Rittenhouse case just did not do a good job. I mean, that happens. We're all humans here. Um, some would criticize, did they do a good enough job of getting the viewpoint and vantage point of Rosenbaum and Grosskreutz, I can't pronounce his last name, the three men that were shot, uh, one of them, uh, Huber was killed, Rosenbaum was killed, and then Grosskreutz uh, survived. And really, you know, if Rittenhouse felt that he was threatened, what about the feelings of, I call them victims, although the judge said he couldn't call them victims. What about the three victims in their vantage point as uh, being around somebody who's an active shooter carrying an AR-15 style weapon? So um, again, it's hindsight's 2020, and this is why we have trials. And if the evidence isn't there, which the jury said it wasn't reaching that threshold, then Rittenhouse was acquitted. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's definitely how it is. And then even talking about like all these uh, current events, it's like just, I don't know how to say it, but it's like, I just find it so fascinating that like stuff like this is happening. Like even one of the current events that I did a little bit of research on was what's happening in the Supreme Court. It's currently at like lowest approval rating. And in the upcoming like semesters for the Supreme Court, they're going to be talking about like two huge cases one being about the Second Amendment and one being about abortion, which I think is, like, really important. And, like, from my research, it shows that, like, there are over, like, 10 states that are ready to already overturn Roe v. Wade. So, like, what do you think about that? Especially with the Supreme Court having such a low approval rating at this point. Yeah, I mean, they literally just heard the case today. I don't know the parties, but uh, the oral argument just ended about an hour ago. Or two hours ago in uh, the case that's challenging i believe it's the mississippi abortion law i don't call me that's right i got a light i have to click on oh can you see me all right 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have a majority of justices that are conservative ideology, six to three. So that's a pretty deep imbalance if you look at it numerically. Um, does that mean all six will vote in favor of banning or more strictly uh, restricting abortion? You know, it remains to be seen. The opinion will be issued in June. So, uh, yeah, this is one of the most divisive issues. I'm not going to pick a side here on, on the Zoom call with you, but uh, one of the most divisive issues in our society is, you know, is this a fetus or is this a human life? Um, you know, there's obviously difficult choices in life, but um, I, it's certainly looking based on what I've read just right now about comments on the oral argument that uh, further restrictions will be uh, placed on abortion. And so that'll be harder to access for uh, women that are seeking it. So again, I'm, I don't need to get on my soapbox and talk about mm -hmm. my personal opinion about it. But um, yeah, when the dynamics of the court shift and you have the Trump appointees with conservative ideology, uh, cases like this come up and can really change the landscape of our jurisprudence on very, very important issues like gun control uh, versus gun rights and then abortion as well. Yeah, that would be just notable with like Amy Coney Barrett, which is the newest justice. And I think it's like with the approval rating being like so low, why do you think it's like that? Do you have any opinion on why it's like around 40-ish percent rather than it being like much higher than that? I mean, my view, I, I think, is just the politicization, politic, well, I can't say right now, politicization of the court. So Merrick Garland not being able to be confirmed when Obama put his name forward uh, to, to replace Scalia. So that it's just so politically charged. I think people look at it not as an institution of impartiality anymore. They look at it as liberal versus conservative, which, again, all the justices are people. I mean, you have John Roberts in his confirmation hearing, and I believe also Kavanaugh in his confirmation hearing. Oh, you know, as a justice, you're just here to call balls and strikes. You can look up that language in the confirmation hearing. I mean, are, are these justices really umpires or are they, are they people coming in with their own feelings, beliefs, ideologies? Um, and I think one can make an argument for that. So it's not an elected body, right? This is appointed by the president. So I think for a lot of people seeing it become so politicized, I mean, this actually goes back really even further to Bush versus Gore in 2000 and deciding the election. I think people are just looking at the court. They want justice and justices to be impartial and to be neutral. And I think increasingly people are not feeling that way. I think. That's my theory as to why you're seeing lower approval numbers. Yeah, 100%. I feel like most of the people want to see the Supreme Court like use the law as a way of doing everything and use like whatever's available, not really uh, their own opinions, but use everything that has been placed down, the precedents, everything like that in order to make decisions. Like not based off like obviously their own judgment, but based off like what would be good for the land what would be good for like from what they have if you like it's hard to describe but from the laws that are already derived if you know mm -hmm. what i mean right mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah definitely that could be one aspect i was also thinking like maybe the reason approval rings are so low is because of how social media is tainting them 
like I said, social media is like a huge aspect of what's going on around us. I feel like it's really a huge part of how people view it because not many people even like social media could just be going on your phone, Twitter, stuff like that. And when a bunch of people are just posting their radical views, people will just like hop along with it and not even look at like news articles. And like when they do that, they just take a like one side or another and think, oh, the Supreme Court's bad. And it just like right. goes off of that. Yeah, I, I can't see. I'm not. I'm not as involved with social mm-hmm. media. I, I don't. I, I don't think consume it the way. Maybe it's a generational thing. I kind of get my news other ways through some mm-hmm. of the major publications. So, I, yeah, I think you know that could be a valid viewpoint too. I just don't know enough about mm-hmm. social media to really chime in on that. Okay, definitely. And then probably one of the last things that I want to talk about, I know this is like pretty short, but it would be about like the death penalty uh, morality thing that we're talking about in class. And like, what do you think about like, obviously you've done a lot of research on the death penalty. And I just want to know your opinion on like how you would go around it, like the morality of it. Should it be, well, not should it be allowed because that would be an opinion that you don't have to give. But just like the different viewpoints of both sides. Yeah, I mean, the death penalty perspectives class I teach really tries to look at the lens of all the various players, if you will, as many as we can, from judges to juries to lawyers, excuse me, the death row inmate to the inmate's family to the victim's family to the victim to the spiritual advisor that's there during an execution, typically an ordained chaplain. Uh, So we look at all these different viewpoints. I think, you know, fundamentally from sort of a religious morality context, you have eye for an eye. So this person killed someone, and just to be clear, I mean, most death penalty cases are a first-degree murder case. Um, There can be other capital prosecutions, but for the most part, somebody's killed somebody either intentionally or during the commission of a felony. They call that a felony murder. And it's only in certain states that have the death penalty and there has to be an aggravating circumstance. So it's not just any first degree murder case. So eye for an eye, they killed somebody, you should kill them, uh, versus turning the other cheek and having uh, recognition of forgiveness and redemption and penitence or penance, uh, or, uh, you know, we get that through, you know, penitentiary. So. I think there's just two pretty divergent views. I mean, if you look at the statistics, the last poll that I checked from the Pew Research Center had the death penalty approval rate at 60%. Uh, so a majority of Americans still favor it. 27 states still have the death penalty on the books. But you are seeing a decrease in the number of executions, right? So there's still people on death row, but there's been uh, reprieves and sentences vacated. And not, obviously, sometimes the inmate will pass away while they're uh, incarcerated. So uh, just from a moral piece, you know, is is it, you know, wrong for the state to commit a murder by executing somebody? Because it is listed as homicide, right? Uh, or is this crime so vile, wicked, uh, such a, a disregard for human life uh, that that person should be killed? And we have really, you know, clear examples of where say the federal government has stepped in with the Oklahoma City bombing, and then with the uh, Boston Marathon bombing, um, of really heinous crimes uh, where people say enough's enough, and this is just a despicable act, and this person should be uh, put to death. So 
uh, you know, I think that there's moral arguments on both sides. Um, I think what's gotten more prominence lately is the innocent argument. Uh, those that have been wrongfully convicted, uh, evidence after execution of some uh, inmates actually being innocent but being executed anyway. Uh, so that certainly is an argument that you you know you have to look at. You know, is it moral to execute somebody for a crime they didn't commit? I think many people would say that's immoral. So is there a risk of that? Well, we have a human system. Everybody in the system is human, and mistakes do happen. Uh, and um, so that's just something like a moral reckoning that the people have to make with regard to the death penalty. So, yeah, there's a lot of literature out there, um, and uh, mostly in the academy, it's anti-death penalty. Uh, but there is a professor up at New York Law School. His name's Robert Flecker. He wrote a, a book, the, the Death of Punishment, and he created a, a documentary called Robert Blecker Wants Me Dead. And he profiles a man who killed his four children, so a, a pretty you know extreme example, uh, and saying, look, this, this is polluting society to have somebody like this alive. So I think interesting arguments on both sides, and we all have to kind of be introspective and look at our own morals and kind of make a decision as to what we think is right. But uh, there's nothing more serious than taking someone's life. It's the ultimate punishment. And um, so, I, you know, I think deservedly so. It's called death penalty perspectives for the get uh, a better understanding of this critical issue. Um, but it's certainly trending in the direction of less and less executions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that perspective definitely like opens my eyes because I remember we've talked about the death penalty many times, especially with like different cases. Like I remember in class we were talking about like if a robber was to take someone's life, would we give the death penalty to them? Because was their intention to actually shoot them or was it just to rob the store? And if someone pulls out a gun on them, if they shoot them, they can't claim self-defense because they were the ones causing the harm. So it's just like so interesting to see like how different cases can vary and like how different people can view things with different morals just because of how cases go. Obviously with the Blecker case, it's very like obvious that he had malintentions to some people but some people could resonate with him in some ways and say that he had like intentions that weren't bad so it's so it's like just interesting to see how people's different morals just like collide with how they view the death penalty as well i agree i agree absolutely mm -hmm. and then yeah. oh wait would you like to say something no no go ahead yeah yeah, like, I just find all this very interesting, which is why, like, the death penalty is just so hard to, like, say. It's, like, not black or white. There's so many shades of gray in between. Right? Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, that's why it's interesting to discuss and mm -hmm. people feel passionately and, you know, hey, what if this was your sister, or your daughter, or your uncle, or your aunt that got, had a brutal rape and murder um, and it was agonizing and um yeah I, I think that that's really you know blecker's view he puts himself himself in the shoes of the victim's family but um we have other uh you know concepts to think about you know about um you know what is the alternative punishment which is life without parole and prison which we know our prisons are inherently violent places these aren't hotels despite some of the footage he was showing in his uh, video, they're not pleasant places. So uh, it, there, is, there is punishment, there is retribution, maybe not to the degree that Professor Blecker wants, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely interesting to discuss. Mm-hmm, definitely. And then, probably for the last question, I know Thanksgiving just happened, but I want to know, like, what did you do over Thanksgiving? Did you do anything, like, fun? Like, after all yeah. this, like, bleak talk, I just wanted to, like, lighten the mood just, sure. like, at the end. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I had a really good Thanksgiving. Um, let's see. So, I had my aunt came in from uh, Oregon. I had a Thanksgiving dinner with my brother and his spouse and my aunt and mother and my nephew and niece and brother-in-law. So we had a group of about 13. And so that was nice to get the whole family together and not have to travel. And then Friday night, our daughter got uh, consecrated at our um, religious institution, which was nice for a religious school. And then Saturday, we actually went to the Van Gogh Immersive exhibit. I'd recommend it to everybody. I'm a huge Van Gogh fan. It was like an art ex- exhibition like I've never seen before. Uh, it's a uh, it's up in Northeast DC right now, so it's it's a little pricey, but I think well worth uh, the cost of admission. It presented Van Gogh in, in so many different ways with his art and using technology. Uh, so that was fun, and uh, yeah, got I, I guess I got a little bit of rest and relaxation. Oh, and I read. I actually got to read two books, which I'll tell the class. One was on Easy Coats, uh Between the World and Me, and then I also got to read a uh, much larger book and that had a huge impact on me and I don't normally get to read for leisure I'm mostly reading books for your classes especially when I'm on an overload like this for classes but I read uh, Rutger Bregman's Humankind which is really debunks some social psychology experiments debunks the Stanford prison experiment talks about the Kitty Genovese murder so I'll talk about this in class but it's really nice to just kind of get lured into a couple books and have some time for r and so I'll just close by saying, Roger, I appreciate talking mm-hmm. with you. Just, um, you know, if you do need to attribute something I've said, please let me know, because otherwise like, this conversation is for your educational purposes, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. That was actually really insightful. I appreciate your time, and I guess I'll just see you this Friday. Yeah, I will, I will see you on uh, mm-hmm. Friday. We've got a speaker coming in who's going to start off vir- virtually for the first probably hour. She's a fantastic... Uh, attorney since the the topic is the American legal profession and then we'll dive into some group work and yeah we're getting towards the end here but it's great having you in class appreciate talking to you as always I'll see you then yeah thank you so much okay okay bye take care you too